Hello, hello. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. And this morning, I have the pleasure uh, of launching our new sermon series, uh, which we have entitled Life, Love, and Lament. And for the next few weeks, or sorry, the next few months, we're going to be studying the books of Obadiah, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and Habakkuk. And so this morning, as we kick off this brand new series, I have two goals that I hope to accomplish this morning. First, and most importantly, I want to effectively cover the entire book of Obadiah. Not too hard, it's only one chapter. Uh, but according to BibleGateway.com, even though it is short, it is the least often read book of the Bible. Uh, from all of them, it is, it is ranked lowest of often read. And so secondly, I hope to show you why it is so worth it this morning for us to learn from Obadiah and from these other books that we're going to cover in the, in the series. So those are my two goals. And I want to handle the second one first. Why is it worth studying Obadiah? Because while this book is not written to us directly, I believe that it is written for us. To show you why, I want to start off simply reading verse 1 from Obadiah, which is on page 724. If you have one of the church Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And, and I want to start by covering some critical historical context that will be helpful for us as we begin studying this book. So read verse 1 with me. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. So this morning, for context, we need to ask and answer a very important question. Who is the audience of the book of Obadiah. Who is this book written about, but also who is this book written for? And this is easy to lose track of in Obadiah because as we continue to read, we will see that the word you is used over and over again, referring to the people of Edom. But I don't think that that means that the people of Edom are actually the intended audience. Verse 1 says that this is the vision of Obadiah, who was a Jewish prophet concerning Edom. So what we're about to read to is addressed to Edom, but I think that it is actually God tipping his hand to the nation of Judah, calling them to repent. Who is the nation of Judah? Well, the nation of Judah, according to 1 Kings 11 and 12, was the southern kingdom comprised, the southern kingdom of Israel comprised of two of the original 12 tribes of Israel, which God had separated from the other 10 tribes because of their collective idolatry. So prior to this split, which we read about in 1 Kings, both of these nations Judah and Israel were called Israel. But afterward, the northern kingdom maintained their name Israel, while the southern kingdom 
which borders on the nation of Edom, became known as Judah. So, we know from that context that Judah is already facing the judgment of the Lord because of their idolatry. But we also know that God hasn't given up on his promise to them. So, Obadiah is essentially, I believe, Judah the nation of Judah, getting to read Edom's mail, so to speak, to see how God perceives this other nation. It's God revealing to them the truth about Edom. And why does he do that? Because of an even longer history between these two nations, between Edom and what was Israel, and is now Judah specifically. Edom and the once united kingdom of Israel are the two nations who are descended from twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. You may be familiar with those names. Their father was Isaac and their mother was Rebekah. So Genesis 25 explains to us the struggle that happened between these two brothers even before birth and the promise that God made even then. In Genesis 25, 23, God tells Rebekah this. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So friends, the fates of Esau and Jacob, of Edom and Israel slash Judah are inextricably tied together. And they're both tied to the promise, to the covenant of God. So while Edom is going to be the clear object this morning of Obadiah's vision, we need to keep sight of these other two players of the drama. This is not exclusively about Edom. It is also about Judah But even more importantly, I think, friends, it is about God himself. And so I think that this is the case this morning, that that Obadiah, the, the vision of Obadiah is directed to Judah for a very specific purpose, to assure them that God will keep his covenant with them, and also to warn them that they are not innocent of the same pride which they see and perceive in their twin nation of Edom. So, that is a lot of history. That is a lot of context this morning. But, but let's bring it to something relatable. I have noticed this same principle at work with my two children. When one of my children sees the consequences that the other child receives for their disobedience or bad behavior... The first child will often come up unsolicited and say to me, I didn't do that. Did I, Daddy? I'm innocent. I didn't do that thing that they just were in trouble for. Right? (laughs) To which I respond, no, this time you did not do that. But have you ever done that same kind of thing? And will you ever in the future be tempted to do that same kind of thing again? And they can see the results of how a consistent loving father responds 
and will respond to them in the future by how I treat their sibling right now. And let's be clear, though, that God does this perfectly, and I do not. So, how does all of this apply to us this morning? What are our goals here this morning? It speaks to why we, this morning, sitting here and participating on Zoom, are, are compelled to study and to learn from books like Obadiah and Song of Solomon and Lamentations and Habakkuk. Yes, these are ancient, ancient poetic writings that, that are written concerning other nations and maybe even other ideas than you may be dealing with in your current life phase. However, friends, this morning, just as Obadiah was written concerning Edom, but I believe was intended for Judah, God's word was written to extend beyond any single time or nation. God gives us, he gives to us his word because of his tremendous love for us. Friends, he desires to reveal his very nature to us and to show us how he will deal with with us by revealing to us how he deals with others. So let's this morning read Edom's mail and Judah's mail and Israel's mail and all of the nations that God works with this morning. Through each of them, he will reveal his purpose for our life and the nature of his love and his care for us in our lamentation, in our sorrow. So with that context in mind, move on to section two as we continue this morning reading Obadiah and we will see that our own pride is no less deceptive than the pride of Edom or the pride of Judah. Read with me verses 2 through 9. Behold, I will make you, that is the nation of Edom, small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding will i not on that day declares the lord destroy the wise men out of edom and understanding out of mount 
Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. These verses show this morning how meaningless it is to pride ourselves in our current circumstances, no matter how lofty. Look at all the contrasts this morning between the language of rising up and the language of bringing down. These contrasts highlight the vast, vast differences between how the nation of Edom views itself and how God views them. Edom says in verse 3, I have made myself secure. In verse 4, I'm only getting greater. In verse 7, I have allies and the respect of other great nations. But remember the promise from Genesis 25. They are essentially saying, in their pride, I have overturned the promise that God made to Esau and Jacob. Now, the older twin has rightly surpassed and prevailed against the younger twin. My strength has surpassed even the authority of God to rule in my nation. Essentially, friends, God's covenant is broken. But God says, in verse 2, you will be made small. Verse 4, you will be brought down. Verse 6, your allies have deceived you. Verse 9, you will be powerless and will be utterly destroyed. Verse 7, Esau, you have no understanding. The pride of high cities, of alliances, of might and wisdom... Friends, none of it means more than the promises of the Lord. And this should be both comforting and terrifying to the nation of Judah as they read this perspective of God's. It would be comforting to them because this is the God who made a covenant with them to be their God forever and to dwell among them friends he will never abandon them but this should also be terrifying because he is the same god who made a covenant with them to judge them for their sin for their idolatry a covenant to hold them responsible to an impossible standard. And he will never abandon that standard. So it is comforting and terrifying to Judah to get this picture of who God is. So how does this promise to bring down Edom apply to us this morning? How does this warning to Judah apply to us. Friends, if we are honest, we are no less prone to this same pride ourselves 
in the things that are temporary than Edom or Judah was. We also look for our security in places other than the Lord. We, we look to secure ourselves in our careers. We look to secure ourselves in our finances. We look to secure ourselves in our families. In things that we feel like we are in control. But friends, that is pride in our own imagined control over our future. Divorced from our dependence on God. How else do we do this? We look for our identity in the opinions of our friends or our allies. Whether positive or negative opinions, sometimes friends, both are pride in who men believe that we are. Above who the Creator says that we are. We build ourselves philosophies that are divorced from the wisdom of God. And we hold up these ideals as as enlightened. Friends, that is pride in the things of men. The things that men value beyond what God values. Here are just a few specific examples that I could think of this morning. Of how the pride in the things men value are placed above those God values. Our modern gender identity in our country is one example. Christian prosperity gospel is another. There are a numberless host of self-fulfillment strategies. That we employ to satisfy ourselves. Humanism. Any countless other real current issues. Are pride friends in nothing. Pride in our inflated self-service. Is Obadiah applicable this morning? Yes. Yes friends. Obadiah is applicable this morning. Because we are full of pride. And friends, that is tremendously dangerous. That pride is extremely dangerous. Because in our pride, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We believe that we have overturned the authority of God. We look around at at those who are around us. We are secure in our high cities. Our strong support from intellectuals and from mighty men. And we truly believe that that matters at all. And when we believe that, we have the, the idea that we become right We become justified in everything that we do, no matter how far from the Lord. And so we are deceived in our own pride into, in fact, opposing the very God that we have talked about this morning. 
So let's move on to point three. And we will see that what that action looked like in the context of Edom and Judah. How did they turn themselves in opposition to God? We'll read Obadiah verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Here we see some of the actions that Edom is tempted to take against their brother nation because of their misplaced pride. Like many of the prophetic books, there is debate about when precisely this text was written. But the events that are being addressed in these verses are likely during the rule of King Jehoram in Judah. Verse 10 and 11 refers to the time that was detailed in 2 Chronicles 21, where we find two important things happen with the nation of Judah and Edom simultaneously. Two things happen during that point in 2 Chronicles. Edom rebels from under the authority of Judah. And simultaneously... The Lord stirs up judgment against Judah because of their idolatry. And this judgment was executed at the hands of two other nations, the Philistines and the Arabians. And while God is orchestrating that judgment on his people, Judah, Edom takes advantage of this destruction. And Edom, while not strong enough to directly attack Judah, has routinely been on the periphery of antagonizing them. This is kind of like the the lackey who stands behind the bigger kids, who encourages them to abuse others, saying, yeah, beat him up, and then taking pride in their relative state, feeling elevated compared to the one who has been brought down to the ground by these other kids. And yet, God still refers to Judah as his people. They are still his people, and he has not abandoned them, friends. He has never abandoned them. Even from the time in Egypt, where they came, brought out of Egypt... God has been with them. 
And I think verse 14 likely refers to that earlier event, actually detailed as, as Israel was brought out of Egypt in Numbers verse 20. As they came fleeing from their, their captivity in Egypt, Edom came down from their mountains simply to prevent the nation of Israel from moving through their land. They stood at the crossroads and prevented them from moving through their land. And these verses also look forward ahead to the Babylonian exile, where Edom has another chance to behave differently toward Judah. But in both cases, friends, Edom is not the primary cause of Judah's downfall. But verse 12 says that they gloat and they rejoice and they boast over the ruin of Jerusalem. I think that it's fascinating here because, again, there are three people acting. Not just Edom and not just Judah, but also God himself who has caused the judgment of Judah for their sin. And yet he does not abandon them. And he, in fact, condemns Edom for reveling in that. Do you see? God's discipline of his people because of their idolatry reminds them of the futility of their pride in anything other than the Lord. But Edom sees the judgment as a sign of their own self-righteousness. And so rather than being humbled and brought before the Lord... They place themselves in their pride in opposition to God's people. Rejoicing at their misfortune, verse 12 says. And so we see that Edom rejects God. And Judah rejects God. And friends, you and I reject God far, far more often than I am comfortable admitting. How does this apply? First, friends, do not oppose God in your pride. This might look like an unrepentant heart. I don't need to repent. I'm good enough. This might look like a selfish, self-entitled attitude. I've worked hard for what I have. Other people should just do the same thing. This might look like apathy. Just let other people serve the church. I'm, I'm busy enough. But friends, none of these attitudes are in line with God's word. And they are in opposition to his word. Secondly, this applies in how we respond to the judgment of God in others. Do not rejoice, friends, when you see others brought low. Don't stand distantly like Edom, jeering at your brother in your pride. That is the opposite of how God responds to us. Drawing near, even to die, to make a way to be united with his people. 
Kids, do you rush to your parents demanding what you think is justice when your sibling does something wrong? But maybe you're less quick when you do something wrong. Maybe you hide that thing or or minimize what was in your heart when you did that. Adults, do you secretly or maybe even smugly believe that trans or homosexuals somehow deserve abuse or rejection because of their sin? Or adults, maybe you take pleasure in proving yourself to be right over your spouse. Do you see how prideful all of that is, friends? We are all just as guilty. Your heart is just as prone to sin as the most violent criminal. Your heart worships idols too in place of God. Idols of identity, idols of money, idols of self-gratification. For me, this is often an idol of, of order in my life. That somehow, by my force of will, I will keep everything in its place and operating according to my plan. Everything will be sacrificed to make it operate the way I want it to operate. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, God, for putting what I want My way, God, above your way. So friends, if Obadiah was meant for Judah to look at Edom and to see the effects of their pride and sin, to see the result of what happened, what God promised would happen, when that pride leads them to oppose God, then Judah should be asking the question, what makes the difference between their fate when they too oppose God and they too fall in service to idols? And what is the difference between their fate and the fate of Edom that God promises here? Is there really any difference at all between Edom and Judah in the eyes of God? And we should ask ourselves a similar question. I think, friends, that the answer is yes. There is a difference. And that difference is because of God's covenant with Israel. God's promise to King David to establish a throne and a kingdom forever. That is what makes the difference. So let's conclude the book of Obadiah as we see God's promises extend to the final day of the Lord in this last section this morning. Read with me verses 15 through 21. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. 
as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations, all the nations shall drink there, or shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau and those of Shephtalah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Friends, here we see the results of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord comes the same for all nations in the end. But in the end, those chosen by God are raised up and those who oppose him are destroyed. Verse 15 widens this lens of prophecy from simply Judah, Edom, and God to apply now to everyone. And God assures that all, God assures all the nations that they will receive just repayment for the things that they have done. The Edomites, the Philistines, the Arabians, all indulged in willing rebellion against God. And both Israel and Judah, too, rejected Him. And in doing so, they and we, friends, have taken for ourselves a cup of wrath, which I think is represented in verse 16. The wrath of God from a holy God. By our own pride and by our own choice, we will drink and drink and drink from that cup until it is as, until it as, as if we had never been. But, friends, but, there is nothing greater than God's promise. Nothing greater than His covenant. God promises in verse 17 as well as verse 20 that there will be some who are set aside from that wrath. 
who are made holy, preserved in Mount Zion from the wrath of God. The exiles of the host of Israel who will be saved. How will they be saved? Verse 21. Because of the saviors, the messiahs who rule. But the kingdom, my friends, is the kingdom of the Lord. I think here that there is both a historical and spiritual reality. Throughout Jewish history, this has been true. Saviors, plural, have been raised up by God to free the people of Israel. To restore them to their land. To judge the nations that oppressed them. But God also promised to send the Savior, the Messiah, singular, friends. And it, the children of God will become a fire, it says in verse 18, that burns away the temporary stubble of rebellious opposition to God. But the fire of God's people was always meant to be more than that. To also be a light that shines out to the world. To all nations. Because friends, I cannot say it strongly enough. God keeps his promises. If God used this prophecy regarding Edom as a picture to show Judah what God would do for them, keeping his covenant and bringing justice, then I think it is completely appropriate to apply these historical realities of what happened to the nation of Judah as a picture of God's salvation. Ultimately, there is one and only one final Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes a way, a way that on the day of the Lord, it will bring both justice and redemption. How does this apply? Friends, depend fully on the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we have all been deceived by the pride in our hearts. And so we have all opposed God in our sin. Which means that on the day of the Lord, we must all drink from that cup of wrath until it is as if we have never been. Unless, friends, Unless someone takes that cup and drinks it for us. It was Jesus. The Messiah who took the cup dying on a cross. And he drank it so that a remnant of the host of Israel might escape. And be set apart in God's holy kingdom. That is what makes the difference 
between Judah and Edom. That is what makes the difference for us this morning, friends. It is God's covenant, the promise that he made to Abraham that was passed down to Isaac and to Jacob that God would somehow make a way for a people to be made holy for him. Friends, only through Jesus. And that, friends, is why Obadiah, as well as all of the rest of God's word, no matter how rarely read, is not only worth studying over the next months, but worth hanging all of your hopes on. Because, friends, it's about Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. God, this morning, we thank you for letting us read your mail. God, for revealing to us who you are and how you have made a way for us to be united with you. God, we are a sinful people. We reject you, God. But your son made a way for us to be changed. God, that on the day of the Lord, you would welcome us. You would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome, my son. Welcome, my daughter. Because of the work of Jesus. God, we are in awe of your work throughout history. Lord, through nations, through people, God, the ways that you have worked to establish your kingdom that will never end. God, we ask you to hasten that day. We are eager for that day, God, when we will be together with you. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray, amen.